So when we come to a retreat like this, <clears throat> to take up a practice of awareness, we are willingly putting ourselves in a situation where we're going to uh, receive some teachings, and we're going to take on some, um, make an effort to develop this thing called awareness, and it's good to have some uh, some understanding of uh, why we should do this, uh, what's the benefit of doing this, where do these teachings come from, uh, how can we do it effectively, uh, just so that we can feel some confidence, really, or maybe have some faith, or at least trust that... Uh, what you're hearing, what you're doing, uh, has some purpose and meaning and benefit. So I want to speak about that a little bit. So I started uh, practicing um, mindfulness uh, 40 some years ago when the senior teachers of this tradition first started teaching. And I practiced for about 10 years doing retreats like this with uh, Western teachers uh, in, here in the States. And then uh, just life conditions uh, urged me to go and I really wanted to have an opportunity to practice this kind of meditation intensively for as long as I could, for as long as I wanted to. And so I made a decision to go to Burma to uh, practice meditation. I also wanted to live in a Buddhist country to see what, what the effect of not just Buddhism, but maybe those who practice awareness would be on a whole culture, a whole society. And I also wanted to ordain as a monk. I had a strong connection with a few monks that I had met over the first 10 years, and I wanted to try that lifestyle of, of practice. So I decided to go to Burma because uh, I knew a monk there, Saito Upandita, and he was the only person I knew in, in Burma or Thailand. So I decided to go there and to practice with him. Well, when I went uh, through Bangkok to get to, to Rangoon, I'd never been out of the country before. And I'd hardly been out of New England. And so I found myself in a very foreign country. Uh, the climate was very different. Uh, people wore different clothes. They certainly ate different food. They spoke a different language. They... They just had a different rhythm of life altogether than what I was familiar with. And uh, the whole economy was different. Everything about being in Burma was very different. But I was determined to practice mindfulness because it was what I had come to Burma for. I wasn't there as a tourist. I wasn't, I wasn't interested in touristing or learning the language or anything like that. I just wanted to practice. So I went to the monastery and 
started practicing, and it's a pretty rigorous practice there. You know, as Sayadu Pandita says, you can sleep all you want between 11 and 3. And the other 20 hours of the day, you're expected to be sitting and walking alternate hours to develop mindfulness. And they weren't kidding. That's what they expected. Well, in my, you know, the, my naivete and my, you know, feeling quite alone and quite, not alienated, but quite isolated from others there because I didn't speak the language. Um, there's one thing that sticks out in my mind as being uh, a really a significant experience for uh, encouraging me to feel at ease and comfortable and connected to others. So, even though I was excited to be there, I was apprehensive and a little bit lonely. But at this monastery, at this meditation center, in the morning, there was a, a sitting before breakfast. So I would go to the sitting at, you know, four o'clock or whatever it is, 4.30, and I would sit, and then as it got close to time for breakfast, 5.30, I would get up and uh, stand beside my teacher's cottage uh, and wait for the call to come to the dining room. And as I was standing there, it'd be dark because uh, in the monastery you can only eat breakfast when you can see the lines on your hand by the daylight. So it changes throughout the year. But it's around somewhere between 5.30 and 6 in the morning. And uh, in that sitting, just before breakfast, is when uh, the different meditators at the meditation center would chant the refuges and precepts. So I'd be standing there in the early dawn light and there was a meditation hall of for women up near the dining room up the hill a bit uh, near the dining room and they would start chanting first and they have a chant that the, does the refuges the precepts and a little bit of metta loving kindness and it takes you know uh, five or six minutes something like that maybe and so that dining hall I mean that, that meditation hall could hold up to about 1,200 women. Sometimes there were only 100 or 200, sometimes there were 500, sometimes there was 1,200. But they would start chanting, and Burmese women are very devout, and they are very enthusiastic, and they are very faithful. And when they chant the Revages and Precepts in Loving Kindness, it is soul music. <laughs> I mean, it is hair-raising because they're so passionate and so enthusiastic. So I'd hear them start chanting, and they were like, wow, just really powerful. And then, just down the hill a little bit from that meditation hall, there was another meditation hall for women, and it was two floors, 500 on each floor. And one of those floors would start chanting a minute after the first hall, and then the second of those two halls would start chanting. You know, now we got another thousand uh, women chanting, and then there's a men's uh, hall on the other, on the other side of the roadway, still between me and the dining room, that can handle uh, like 1,200 uh, men, monks, and they start chanting. And then down below where I was standing, there's another hall for another six or eight hundred. So sometimes there'd be 
two, three thousand, four thousand people chanting the refugees totally out of sync with each other, but nevertheless it was pretty moving. And it was so uh, interesting to to realize that they were expressing their faith, their uh, gratitude, their um, inspiration, their commitment, their devotion to the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, and their practice. And I realized in listening to them that that's what I was doing. That I too was there practicing with my faith and confidence in the Buddha, and the Dharma, and the Sangha, and my own practice, my own interest in practice. And so it was the it was a feeling of being connected to these people that I didn't, I couldn't speak to, and and yet I realized we were doing the same thing. I was there doing the same thing they were doing. And so it helped me to feel connected. It helped me to feel um, uh, how universal and how potent and how beneficial, really, the practice is for people, including myself. So when I heard that, I felt really connected. And there's an interesting thing about the monastery where I was practicing. It's like everyone who works there, the cooks, the cleaners, the, you know, the, the chauffeur, the people who drive, monks and things around, they've all done the practice. They all have utter faith and confidence in the practice for themselves and for everyone else who's there. So even though I might have felt kind of hesitant and, you know, kind of, what am I doing here? They didn't have any doubt about it. They knew I was there, and they knew how I was practicing, and they knew it would, it would work for me too, or that the practice would be beneficial for me, and that I would, I would discover that. So it's like, even if you have any doubt about your own capacity, or any fear of your own capacity, or any hesitancy, they all are just, they are so supportive and so happy to have you there practicing. You can't not feel inspired, confident, encouraged just by their presence. So it was really a, a great connection and an acknowledgement of how uh, men and women, monks, nuns, hermits, renunciates of one sort or another have been taking the refuges and precepts for 2,500 years, every day. Millions of people, every day, expressing their faith and confidence in what we'll be doing here this week. We may think, well, I, you know, I'm just, I'm just doing my first retreat, or I'm just, you know, we're just a few people that have a, you know, our own practice, but we're just joining in this vast wave of humanity that has found a refuge in the Buddha, has found a refuge in the Dharma, has found a refuge in the Sangha. So that's what I want to speak about tonight. We often begin a retreat like this by taking the refuges 
precepts. And sometimes we'll, you know, we'll be chanting them in Pali, the language that the Buddha's teachings were first recorded in. <coughs> and sometimes it can be just kind of a mumbo-jumbo of a foreign language and a little bit like Latin in Catholic Church. But that's not that beneficial if it's just a mumbo-jumbo foreign language habit. So I want to speak about taking refuges and how taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha is really an acknowledgement of our aspiration. It's a training of our heart and mind. It's a recommitment of our energies while we're here. And it can really be a practice of inspiring ourselves, reminding ourselves, uh, supporting our aspirations to practice while we're here. So hopefully the information I offer this evening will encourage you to make a practice, awareness practice of chanting in the mornings and really see for yourself how it is to to acknowledge your aspiration each day in this way. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, there are a few different, uh, there's three different ways I want to talk about uh, what that means and what that, how to do that, the effect it has. And the first is to acknowledge that the Buddha was a human being. He's not a god, he's not some kind of supernormal, otherworldly, but he's a human being, just like us. And uh, he, the Buddha, means the one who is awake. And when we, when we inquire, well, what, what does it mean to be awake? It means to be, well, just what we'll be doing here, remembering to recognize every moment's experience. What this, what this leads to with some, when, we, when we develop some continuity, some momentum in our practice, is that it leads to understanding the way things are. When we deeply understand the way things are, we see how natural life unfolds. It's not just the birds and the bees and the trees that is nature. This very process that we are, this mind and body in their process, from birth through life to death and on and on is very natural, naturally occurring, lawfully happening experience. So when we wake up to the way things are, then we wake up to the nature of being a human being the nature of the human mind, the nature of the human body. And this is what the Buddha did. He woke up to the fact of being human. And that awakening is supported by uh, the development of what are called the the ten paramis, or the perfections of mind, the mind that is clear of uh, unskillful thoughts, the mind that is free of aversion, attachment, delusion. And these paramis are qualities like generosity, loving-kindness, renunciation, resolve, uh, ethical, uh, living ethically, um, speaking the truth, uh, 
developing a balanced mind that is not reactive. And when you hear this generosity, truthfulness, loving kindness, equanimity, there's nothing particularly Buddhist about them. There's nothing particularly spiritual about them. These are the qualities of good human beings anywhere in the world. So we might say that the Buddha is one who woke up to being a good human being. Now, he made the, 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 the path of awakening for a bodhisattva is one who becomes a Buddha. That path of awakening is to develop these qualities of heart and mind to the point that they become the default setting of the mind. They become the first response of the mind in every situation. Generosity rather than attachment. Loving kindness rather than impatience. Patience instead of impatience. Uh, Equanimity instead of reactivity. Speaking the truth instead of shading the truth. Wow. Okay. We all have this potential and we all have some commitment to generosity and living ethically and speaking the truth and renunciation but if you're if you've looked at your own mind at all uh, you'll realize there's always there's, there's room for improvement so the Buddha is one who left no room for improvement meaning it was perfected these qualities of mind were perfected in him and they became the default setting of his mind in every situation if that's all you know about the Buddha even that is to acknowledge, okay, here is someone who really did something with their life that's pretty special. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, we're taking, we're acknowledging the uniqueness of the Buddha. That here is someone who's done something really special, really unique, and in addition to that, he taught. Taught what he'd learned so that we too can follow in that path. This guy was a human being. We're human beings. He had this potential. We have this potential. He developed this potential to a realization. Not yet, but we can take refuge in his his way of li- his way of life and the teachings he offered, because he did it. Okay. So we take refuge, when we take refuge in the Buddha, we're taking refuge in this human being. Of course he's passed away, that's gone. But just to know that there was this human being that was able to do this, showing us the possibility and the potential within ourself, that's a great support. Great support for our own efforts to awaken, to develop these qualities of heart and mind. It takes a lot of um, humility and courage to even take refuge in the Buddha. Because here is this teacher saying, you can do this. You have this potential. This is the way to do it. And the, the first requirement is that we're willing to hear the teachings, which is not always easy. There's a lot of teachers out there offering all kinds of stuff, some of which you might not really want to hear. And so we have to listen to everything that comes our way and say, wait a minute, is this some, does this make sense to me? Is this something I want to do or not? 
You know, and so we have to look within ourselves and see, am I going to allow myself to be taught by this teacher, by this teaching? Am I willing to open myself to hear it, to practice it, and see for myself? This is a serious question. What I'll be offering during this retreat is, for the most part, uh, comes straight from the from the teachings of the Buddha, but through different traditions of practice. So hopefully it'll have enough connection to the Buddhist teachings that you can rely on it or take a refuge in it. So we take refuge in the, the Buddha. We also take refuge in our own potential. We have this potential. We're a human being that has a mind, and we can recognize the mind, and we can train the mind. So we have this potential, we can see it, but we may not yet have realized it, as we know. There's lots of room for improvement. But when we take refuge in the Buddha nature within ourself, or the possibility or the potential of awakening within ourself, then we have every reason to practice with confidence. Because we see there is the potential. And for those of you who've been practicing for a while, whether it's one retreat or a decade or two, you know that with practice, we gain more capacity. We become more patient, we become more aware, we become more understanding, we become more loving, we become more energetic, we become more balanced, less reactive. So we see that when we take refuge in the Buddha, we're taking refuge in our own potential to awaken. So we recognize the Buddha as a human being, an archetype, if you will, that we have within ourselves, this potential. We also recognize that the quality of the teacher is significant. Because what, why did the Buddha teach? You know, to gain followers? You know, to get a lot of money? No, it's out of compassion. When you understand the Buddha's way of life, and this is really what he taught, the Buddha taught a way of life, a way of understanding life, a way to live our life that doesn't cause harm to ourselves or others. So it's out of compassion for us that the Buddha taught. It's out of compassion for ourselves and others that we practice. Because to the extent that we practice the developing these qualities of heart, generosity, loving-kindness, non-reactivity, patience. To the extent that we practice and develop those within ourselves, others around us benefit. If we understand ourselves, if we understand our suffering, if we understand how to relieve <coughs> ourselves from suffering, then we're, li- we're, we're less likely to be a bother to other people. And we may actually be a benefit. So while we're here and practicing, you know, our own, with our own bodies and minds doing their, doing their stuff and just trying to wake up to what this, the nature of this human existence is, it may seem pretty self-absorbed. It may seem pretty, you know, pretty um, self-centric. Like, we could be doing so much good and benefit for others. And it's true, we could. But actually, if we understand what we're doing here as being an act of compassion and an act of generosity for everyone we share life with, 
that's an interesting way to practice. It's like, oh, I'm here doing this practice not just for myself. Because if I'm truthful to everyone around me, they benefit. If I'm loving, if I'm patient, if I'm not reactive, if I have some understanding, that's a gift that we give to others. Just by our practice here. So we may be alone here, away from our family and friends and co-workers and neighbors, but nevertheless, the qualities we develop in our heart here go with us when we leave. And then they, we, we share them just through, not so much from uh, proselytizing or trying to convince anybody of anything, but just from the quality of our life. The way we live our life affects everyone. It's not only we who are affected by others, and you know, when, when someone's a real danger to you or a threat to your safety, your security, or your sanity, you know, it really affects you. Well, we are also affected by those who are very loving, those who are very understanding, those who are very patient. And to the extent that we develop those qualities within ourselves, we'll have a, a beneficial effect on everyone that, share, that we share life with. Taking refuge in the Buddha is taking refuge in that potential, taking refuge in the motivation for doing this work. Because sometimes, you know, in practice, it's hard. The body's unpleasant. The mind can be really unpleasant. We can be beset by doubt and tiredness and, you know, pain in the body and pain in the heart. And it, it can be challenging. And so to, to remember in those times, to take refuge in potential. We have this potential. Right now it's being challenged, but if we keep practicing, we, can, we know these qualities of heart and mind will, will, will grow. So taking refuge in the Buddha is, a, is an active practice that I encourage you daily, not just to chant it in the morning and forget it, but just to remind yourself, you know, every man and woman, every being that has practiced these teachings and freed their heart and mind from suffering, has had to do exactly what we have to do. We're not going to be trailblazers. We're following a well-worn trail that this is the path of awakening. And that can give you a lot of courage. That can give you a lot of support. That can give you a lot of faith. Or support your faith. Support your courage. And support your willingness to hear these teachings. The Dharma, taking refuge in the Dharma, is the second uh, refuge that we take. And the Dharma has, again, three uh, meanings that I want to uh, point out. When the Buddha awoke, he taught the truth. And the truth is the Dharma. He taught the way things are, how things have come to be the way they are. And so the teachings of the Buddha are not a good theory, it's not just a kind of an imagination. It's not a, a kind of a... Mm, the Buddha's religion or something like that. The Buddha's pointing to the way things are, what he observed. And so when we hear the teachings, it's not so much telling us this is how you should be or what you should believe. It's more 
his offer of, if you can see things this way, if you can bring your mind around to see things this way, you'll stop suffering. Wow. So the teachings of the Buddha are not Buddhism. They're the Dharma, or they're the truth. They're actually pointing to the nature of being a human being, the nature of this body, the nature of this mind, the nature of uh, human interactions, the nature of fear, the nature of delusion, the nature of love, the nature of wisdom. The Buddha pointed to all these things so that we can begin to see them for ourselves. So when we take refuge in the Dhamma, we're taking refuge in the teachings of the Buddha. Now, the Buddha taught a lot. He taught to a lot of different uh, people uh, in many different situations. And some of what he said or taught might be a little hard to understand. You might even be skeptical. You might even disagree. So it's important to know that, that, that some of what the Buddha taught is, is opaque, it's very difficult, it's uh, not, not, not immediately obvious. But rather than reject it as being wrong, we might just say, well, I've listened to what the Buddha taught, or I've heard what the Buddha taught, I've read what the Buddha taught, and a lot of it's useful, a lot of it is helpful, or it has been if we practice. And what I don't yet understand, or don't yet believe, or can't yet confirm, I'll hold in my heart as a possibility. Because the practice of the Dharma is not about belief. It's not about, it's not whether you believe what the Buddha taught or not. It's whether you have practiced and realized it for yourself that it's true. And for a while, it might not be true for you. So it's important to allow that possibility in your heart. You might hear the Buddha say something, or you might hear something that the Buddha said and say, I don't think so. It's a little counterintuitive. I don't know. You don't have to believe it. If you hear, then maybe, and you practice skillfully, then eventually, or maybe you'll find out for yourself. You'll definitely find out for yourself, one way or the other. So taking refuge in the Dharma isn't just an expression of, I believe, it's an expression of, well, I'll listen and practice what I hear the Buddha taught. So the teachings of the, the Buddha are the Dhamma, pointing to the truth. The truth, as revealed by the Buddha, is really the laws of nature. You know, Western science understands the biological laws of nature, that you plant an apple seed, you get an apple tree. You don't get a pear tree. There's a law of the biological laws of nature are well-defined, and they're defined because they've been observed by humans who understood how, how this was happening. It's not that the humans or anybody invented the laws of nature, or the biological laws of nature, but they have been discovered. They've been discovered because they've been observed, and when they're observed by those who have a, a very uh, full understanding of what they observe, then they can articulate the laws of nature, the biological laws. The physical laws, like the law of gravity, hey, every human being that's ever lived on the face of the earth has lived in alignment with the law of gravity, whether they've known anything about the law of gravity or not. And somebody, I think the guy who, you know, saw the apple fall from the tree, 
You know, he, he, he said, wow, there's this force that's doing that. And then through his observation of the way things are, he was able to articulate the law of gravity, a natural law. He didn't make it up. He didn't invent it. He's got no patent on it. He's got no copyright to it. It's just the way things are. Well, the Buddha is one who has observed the laws of nature in the unfolding of the mind. And he articulated the laws of nature governing the unfolding of the mind. He articulated the law of karma, the, the law of the unfolding of cause and effect due to, due to or conditioned by one's intention in speaking and acting. He also articulated the laws of the unfolding of the mind, the, uh, the laws of nature, the laws of cycling, or the Four Noble Truths, for example. The laws of the Dharma, this is the way it is. So the laws of dependent origination, for those of you who know some, other, some, some of the Buddhist teachings. These are natural laws. Buddha didn't invent them, but he was able to articulate them because of the carefulness and precision and the depth of his uh, observation of the way things are. So when we take refuge in the Dharma, not only are we taking refuge in the Buddhist teachings, we're taking refuge in the laws of nature. Now the laws of nature posit that there's no mistakes. You know, things happen due to causes and conditions. Those causes and conditions give rise to effects. What we're experiencing in every moment is the effect of numerous causes and conditions. We may not know all the causes, we may not know all the conditions that are coming together in this moment to give rise to this effect, but we can be sure we're never going to experience anything that's unnatural. It may be unfamiliar, it may be unwanted, but it's arising due to lawful conditions. So this can be a great support in practice when we run up against difficult stuff in the body, difficult stuff in the mind, and we think, this is not normal, <laughs> this is unnatural, this is, this is not good. Well, it may be unpleasant, but it's not a mistake. It's arising due to lawful conditions. Okay, if we understand those causes and conditions, we may be able to avoid some, we may be able to adjust some, we may be able to amend some, so that if it's an uns- uh, uh, causes and conditions that cause suffering, we can learn how to uh, minimize or avoid it. Taking refuge in the Dharma in this way can really support our practice to bear with difficult, uh, unpleasant, uh, confusing, bewildering, maybe even scary uh, experiences. And by observing them, we can learn about them. And we can learn the laws of nature for ourselves. So the third meaning of Dharma, taking refuge in the Dharma, is each moment's experience is a Dharma. It is a unique moment's experience that arises due to causes and conditions. And when we take refuge in the Dharma in this way, we're saying we're aspiring to find a refuge, a place of safety in this moment's experience. Even if it's painful, even if it's unfamiliar, even if it's something that's shameful or humiliating or unexpected, can we find a place of safety? Can we find a way of being aware of this safely? That's all we want. Because each moment's experience arises in a way that we often often don't control it. 
I mean, we can't control what we're going to experience in life. You just can't control the weather, you can't control other people, you can't control your own body and mind in that way. There's going to be stuff happen. But if we take refuge in the Dhamma, we can take refuge in and find that each moment's experience can be a place of feeling safe. It takes practice, though. That's why when we take the refuges, we're aspiring, we're acknowledging our aspiration. May I find a refuge in the Dharma? I don't yet because it's too scary for me, or it's too painful, or it's too confusing, it's too like shameful or something. I don't, I, I'm not going to find a refuge there. It's kind of terrifying, terrorizing. But in time, with awareness, with understanding the laws of nature, with understanding ourselves, we will come to find that we can feel safe with all of our experience. This is what we're aspiring to. may not be happening yet, but when we take refuge in the Dhamma, we're acknowledging our aspiration in this way. So taking refuge in the Dhamma is taking refuge in the teachings of the Buddha, taking refuge in the laws of nature, and taking refuge in our momentary experience, or at least aspiring to. favorite poets, Galway Canal, who passed away just a couple years ago. He wrote this uh, poem called Prayer, and it's really a poem to be seen, but I will, uh, I'll write it out, put it on the board for you, but it's a poem, or it's a prayer, that acknowledges his aspiration to find a refuge in the Dhamma. <clears throat> he says, whatever happens, whatever what is is, is what I want. Only that, but that. Whatever happens, whatever what is is, is what I want. Only that, but that. So the third refuge that we take is taking refuge in the Sangha. The Sangha means community. And there's, a, there's many different possible communities that are being referenced when we take refuge in the Sangha. In some instances, we could say the group of us, the group of us, uh, 44 retreatants, one teacher, a staff of half a dozen staff, there's 50 people here in this community for nine days is a community. We are a Sangha. We'll be practicing together. We can take refuge in the cooks to provide the meals, the teacher to provide the teachings, and each other to uh, ring the bells and uh, take care of the, the, the jobs that we each need to do so that we can have a, a refuge amongst ourselves and feel safe. Okay. There's also the uh, larger uh, practicing community, and it can be the community, let's say, of all living Buddhists or living 
Buddhist practitioners, those who are on the path of awakening, those who are on the path of living in harmony with all beings, those who are on the path of uh, acting compassionately in the world, developing wisdom and awareness. And, you know, while there is a lot of news that seems to be heading in the other direction, not compassion, not peace, not wisdom, there are a lot of people. There are a lot. There's a huge wave of humanity that's just has been and is continuing to carry the aspiration of peace, compassion, wisdom, understanding in the world. And we can take refuge in that community. It's hard to find refuge in a lot of other acts of humanity, but this is one that we can find a refuge, that we can begin to feel safe amongst that community and their effect on the world. Not only Buddhists, but many. Uh, I don't mean to limit it to just Buddhists, but a lot of sincere and you know, good, good human beings around the world. There is also the Sangha of those who are ordained as monks or nuns. They've made a greater commitment to live the life of renunciation. They take you know, a lot more precepts than we do, training their minds. They've undertaken the acts of renunciation, of just giving up a lot of the indulgence and the, the uh, consumption that the world is... Many in the world are take refuge in. Take ref, I take refuge in consuming more. You know, we do, some of the time. But there are those who have really seen the, the futility of finding happiness, security, uh, peace in consumption. And they, they offer an example to us. We may not be ready to live as a monk or a nun. I may not be... A, possible for us for many different reasons, but we can see that there are those in the world who have found that this is a really beautiful, a beautiful way to live. And somehow it can, it can inspire us, it can support us, we can take refuge in their commitment to live this way, to show us the way. Uh, not that we have to do what they do, but just to know that there are these types of humans that we're sharing this planet with. Then there is the um, the Sangha of those who have practiced the Buddhist teaching and realized it for themselves. Those who have uh, realized some uh, uh, freedom, some liberation, traditionally have uh, gained some degree of enlightenment, whatever that is, or have seen the unconditioned, or have uh, let go of just a tremendous amount, and these are the these are the beings that the men and women and all beings who can carry the teachings and can confirm the teachings to us that it's possible. It's not only for those that lived at the time of the Buddha. It's not only for monks and nuns. It's not only for hermits that live in a cave for for twenty years. But it's for all humans. Anyone who wants to sincerely practice, whether you uh, live in the East, you live in the West, whether you're a monk or nun, or whether you're a layperson, whether you're a parent or not, it's possible. Get that message. We can take refuge in that message. Okay, so there was... 
remember I was staying at this monastery where uh, I was staying. There's <coughs> breakfast was at five thirty, six o'clock, and uh, <coughs> when the bell would ring, well, they didn't have a bell. They have a big hollowed out log, and they swing another log to hit it, and it makes this booming sound to announce that breakfast is now being served. But every uh, December, the first weekend of December at this monastery was a, a kind of an annual uh, memorial uh, celebration for the founder of this tradition of practice, whose name was Mahasi Saido. He passed away back in the early, early 80s. Uh, but every, every December they have a three-day festival where all of the senior monks who are teachers in this tradition and the senior nuns who are teachers in this tradition and they all come with a lot of followers and devotees descend on Rangoon to have a kind of a, a Dharma party if you will for for three or four days and it's just a it's just a high time there's just a lot of people around thousands of people and a lot of people from Rangoon come during the day and there's just uh, pavilions serving food at the right times and there's a lot of uh, Dharma talks from 5 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. Every hour there's a new monk or nun that gets up and starts chanting away. And um, it's really a high time in the monastery. So when, when there are a lot of monks around, I'm just going to speak about monks. Same thing happens with nuns, but I wasn't in that, I wasn't in that section of the monastery. But in the monastery where I was, in the part where I was, I was with the monks. And when monks get together and they go to formal meetings or they go to meals, they always do things in terms of seniority. That means the oldest monk goes first. And the age of a monk is not their biological age, it's how many years they have been a monk. That means how many years have they done a three-month retreat. The Vasa, Vasa is called the three-month retreat, the range retreat that monks traditionally do every year. And it was, a, it was a retreat that the Buddha said, hey, during the growing season, when it's raining and the, the, the farmers are planting and, and, and things are growing, we can't have monks walking all around because they're going to be trampling the, the seeds, seedlings, and things aren't going to grow. So you've got to stay in your monastery for those three months. This is where this is where it originally came from. So we have this three-month retreat. So <clears throat> it's vasa. And we, we, a monk is, is, monk's age is how many vasas they have done many three-month retreats. So if you get ordained just before the first three-month retreat starts, then at the end of those three months, you're one year old. So, or you're one year in, in the monastery, in the monkhood. So when monks get together, they do things in quarter, according to their age. So when the, when the log would be struck and this booming sound would carry out over the monastery at 5.30 in the morning, one of the monks who was an administrator in the monastery, he would step out into the pathway leading up the hill to the dining room, and he would say, 65 wasa. That means anyone who's been a monk for 65 years, that means they're at least 85 years old because you have to be 20 years old before you can ordain. They can go to breakfast. And you see one monk kind of come out of maybe with a cane, <laughs> walking slowly, just kind of stepping out of the pathway and starting up the hill. You know, 64 wasa, <laughs> another one maybe, 63, 62, and they, they go down the, down the thing, and the oldest monks, they're going up the hill, and 
they're just walking along. And when they get down to, you know, 35 wasa, that's somebody who's only been only 55 years old, they can walk a little. And there's more of them. So there's, when they say 35 wasa, a lot of monks step out into the hallway, uh, into the pathway and walk. And when they get down to 15 wasa, that means they could be as young as 35 years old. Then there's quite a few of them. Then when they get down to one wasa or two wasas, I, I could go. <laughs> so, so I would step out into the pathway after all the other monks had gone because I was tended to be near the end of the line. There wasn't too many younger monks. Um, then I would be, you know, in the line of monks and I'd be walking up the hill and it's kind of, it's always misty. It's, it seems like it's always foggy or misty up there at the dining room. So you, you're looking through the lights and you see the fog and there's this long line of monks going up the hill and around the corner of the big women's meditation hall and disappearing in behind there where the dining room was. And I would step out into the, and get in the line and walk and sometimes I'd be the last monk and I'd look ahead and I'd think, wow, I'm the last monk. Somewhere, somewhere up at the head of the line up there, out of sight, around the corner, somewhere up there, is the Buddha. And the Buddha said 2,500 years ago, if you can see what I see, if you can understand things the way I understand things, you'll stop suffering. And he shared that with other men and women in his time, and they practiced, and they realized it. And they taught it to others who practiced and realized, and it came down the line. 2,500 years of, if you can see things this way, you'll be free of suffering. And it came down to Mahasi Saito, and he practiced, and he realized it to some degree. And he taught Saito Upandita, and he practiced, and he realized it to some degree. And Upandita taught it to me, and I practiced. We'll see how I do. Not done yet. But I used to think I was the last person in the line. But I'm not anymore. Because I've taught many of you for many years. So you're behind me. <laughs> or, I should say, the path of the lineage of the teachings continues. And now I'm offering it to you. And it's only by your own practice and your own realization of the truth, the Dharma, that future generations are going to have the possibility that we do have this opportunity. Because each generation has to hear, practice, realize, and share the teachings for the next generation to receive them. And there will be many, many, many generations of humans yet to hear these teachings. They're going to want them just like we want them. They're going to need them just like we need them. And it's our responsibility during this time to hear, to practice, to realize, and to share. That's what taking refuge in the Sangha means. Not all those in front of us, not only all those in the former times, but all those in <coughs> that are coming behind us. They're going to be taking refuge in us. So this can really inspire us to practice, to take our opportunity to hear the Dharma here and to practice the Dharma here can really 
inspire us to do our best. To not really take this for granted. Having these teachings is not something to take for granted. They will disappear from the face of the earth eventually. And then nobody will have the opportunity. But since we have this opportunity, and we can hear them, and we can practice them, why not? I'm going to take faith. I'm going to have faith in your ability to hear and to practice. I'm going to take refuge in you because my grandkids are going to want to hear this later, you know, and their kids too. So that's what it means to take refuge in the Sangha. Stonehouse was no Chinese hermit monk. He lived in the uh, 14th century on Red Curtain Mountain in China. He says, You're bound to become a Buddha if you practice. If water drips long enough, even rock wears through. It's not true that thick skulls can't be pierced. People just imagine that their minds are hard. No matter how difficult your mind might be, your heart, no matter how closed, how tight, how intractable, how unresponsive you think it is, it's just a thought. Practice will soften it up for you. So let's take a moment to just let these words settle into our hearts. <clears throat> 